Welcome to Camarillo Community Church. My name is Matt Heltebrand, as Pastor Dave said. I've been attending here since about 2002. I've been volunteering in the youth groups, uh, both middle school and high school, for several years. And love pouring into you guys. And so I'm glad you guys are here representing. And uh, got a little something for, you know, Dave Lee. This was something for you. Just want to put that right there for you, buddy, because I know how much that means to you right there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just can't be a duck fan. Just can't be it. Can't do it. All right. So here we are. We've been in a, a series called Emmanuel, and we've been looking at the the presence of God uh, among us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And when you think about, it, I mean, the presence of God. I mean, that was the presence of God in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And as believers, we have the Holy Spirit living inside each and every one of us. And the God's presence is here among us today in each and every one of us. Well, we're going to be looking at this morning the presence of God back in the day of Israel through the ark of the Lord. And we're going to be looking at some responses and reactions to God's presence back in those days. But before we begin, I want to start off with a word of prayer. Father God, we are so grateful and so thankful for who you are, for all that you've done. God, I thank you for this opportunity to be here this morning. I pray, Lord, you would speak through me, that you would just push me aside, God, and that you would just speak forth, and that we all here may have ears and hearts and minds open to receive mine included. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we're going to be looking at kind of comparing and contrasting some different responses, kind of how uh, it was done in one of the previous messages when we were looking at Zachariah and Mary and these different ways people responded to the presence of God. <clears throat> and so we're going to be looking at a couple passages that I'm going to be spending some time kind of summarizing and pulling out some key verses and, and then looking at some things that we can learn and what we can do to go into this new year, this 2018 with the a new focus and a new commitment to God. So let's dive in, shall we? So at this stage in the story, in the first Samuel, the people of Israel have been in the promised land for a while. They've had a lot of judges that have been raised up and have overseen the leadership of Israel. And they've, they've kind of driven out most of the, the people that were previously in the promised land throughout the land of Canaan. But there was one group that they never really did vanquish out, and that was the Philistines. And so there have been many battles between the Israelites and the Philistines over the years and the decades. And sometimes the Israelites would win, and sometimes the Philistines would win, all depending on what was going on within Israel and how they were approaching God. And sometimes God would cast judgment, and they allow the enemies to kind of rule over them and conquer them. But we're going to be reading about one of those times. Samuel's been brought up under the leadership of Eli. And now we're at a time where the Philistines decide one more time to go to war against the Israelites. And so they do so. And God gives them victory. They conquered the Israelites. 4,000 soldiers were killed in that battle. The Israelites were like shocked. Like, what happened? We've been having all these victories. Why now? 
They, oh, we forgot. We got to get the, the presence of God, the ark of the Lord. We need to bring him up and put him in our camp, and then we'll have victory. As if just having this, this ark in their presence will all of a sudden give them the might and the strength to overcome and win. And so they do that. They, they summon in the, the ark from Shiloh and they bring it into their camp and a big uproar goes throughout the camp and so loud that the Philistines heard it. And then we see what the first response of the Philistines to God's presence coming into the Israelite camp. And we read this in 1 Samuel 4, verses 6 through 8. It says, what is going on, the Philistines asked. What's all this shouting about in the Hebrew camp? And when they were told it was because the ark of the Lord had arrived, they panicked. The gods have come into their camp, they cried. This is a disaster. We have never had to face anything like this before. Help! Who can save us from these mighty gods of Israel? They're the same gods who destroyed the Egyptians with plagues when Israel was in the wilderness. They were afraid. They knew of God's power. They heard of God's power. How he destroyed the whole army of the Egyptians back in the day. They were afraid. But then, how quickly that fear shifts to arrogance. Because they somehow were able to muster up enough courage, enough strength to go ahead and go to battle against the Israelites again anyways. And because of God's judgment on Israel at the time, he allowed them again to have victory. And this time, 40,000 Israelites were killed. And if that wasn't bad enough, the presence of God, the ark of the Lord, is captured by the Philistines and taken back to their territory. And we read later on in that, or actually in verses five, or chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, after the Philistines captured the ark of God, they took it from the battleground at Ebenezer to the town of Ashton. They carried the ark of God into the temple of Dagon and they placed it beside the idol of Dagon. See, Dagon was their god of war, their god of fertility. This was like their big god. This is the god that they went to wanting to get victory over the Israelites. And so in their mind, they're saying their god gave them this victory and therefore they brought the ark of the Lord back in. It was interesting that they actually didn't destroy the ark, but they kept it. Now there's a couple different ideas of why they brought the ark back. One is maybe that it wasn't uncommon for these type of cultures, these pagan cultures that had multiple gods that when they conquered a, another people group that had other gods, that they would bring those gods in and make them part of their collection of gods, kind of add it to their war chest of gods so that they could have more power and there's more gods to call upon when they needed. And so in doing so, again, thinking that this God Dagon had the victory putting the ark of the Lord down at the foot of the statue of this God. Basically saying that this God is subservient to their God. Another idea is maybe it was just thought of as, as a trophy. Just a token of their victory that they then brought in as an offering to their God Dagon. Boy, <laughs> were they mistaken. And how badly are they underestimated the authority and power of the God of Israel. Because what happens next, as Pastor Dave would put it, flips the script. We read in verse 3 
of 1 Samuel 5. But then, but when the citizens of Ashdod went to see it the next morning, Dagon had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. Their mighty God of Dagon had fallen prostrate down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. I mean, what kind of God can't even stand up on its own? And what's interesting is that when they saw this, I'm sure they were like just shocked and amazed and didn't understand what was going on. And they probably rationalized in their own mind what was the reason why the statue was fallen. And it reads later on in that verse that they picked him back up and put him back in his place. And most likely reinforced this statue so that it wouldn't happen again. I mean, what kind of God not only falls down face on his face before another God, but yet needs man to lift him back up? They talked about how they had to lift their God back up in his place. Is that a God that has any power, is worth worshiping? I mean, think about it. When, when Satan gave his blow to Jesus on the cross at the crucifixion and death of Jesus, Satan thought he won a mighty victory. The Israelites and the, 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 the apostles were probably just scared and confused and not knowing what's going on, just like the Israelites were probably scared and confused and why they had the, suffered the loss and why the ark of the presence of God was taken away from them. But contrary to what the rumors that were being spread by the religious leaders of Jesus' time, it wasn't the apostles that snuck into the grave, grabbed Jesus' body and lifted him up and said, yes, here he is, the king of kings, our God, our savior. No, no, no. For God willingly laid himself down on the cross. And it was God and by God's power alone that raised Jesus from the dead. He didn't need anyone. That is a God with power and authority. So Dagon falls down. They put him back up. They go home. That's that, right? Not so much. Because again, when they come back the next day, not only has the statue fallen down again, prostrate before the ark of the Lord, but we read how the hands and the head of this statue, Dagon, has been broken off and are laying on the threshold of this temple. Some of the significance of that is that the head is thought to be the source of wisdom and knowledge and the hands, the source of power and strength and work. As if God was saying, your God, Dagon, has no wisdom, has no knowledge. He has no power and authority before me. And also in my reading, preparing for this, I learned that the Philistines would often do this to their enemies. They would cut off the hands and the head of their enemy, showing their victory over them. And also as a way to keep track of how many they killed. It was like God giving them a sign that they could understand. By having the hands and the head broken off of the statues, God's saying, I have the victory. Amen? 
Then we see that disease breaks out among the, this area of Ashdod and throughout the surrounding villages. We read in verse 6 of chapter 5. Then the Lord's heavy hand struck the people of Ashdod in the nearby villages with a plague of tumors. So Dagon's hands were broken off, again, signifying that he has no power. But the hand of God still has mighty power and was heavy upon them. Again, God was sending a clear message that he alone is to be worshipped. And no other God can stand against him. And just as Dagon fell, Satan and his kingdom will one day fall before the mighty God who is authority over all. And although it was a clear message, the Philistines missed it. For instead of abandoning their obviously defeated and broken God and surrender to the supreme authority of the God of Israel, they chose to turn away and push out the presence of God. We read in 1 Samuel 5, then verses 7 and 8. When the people realized what was happening, they cried out, We can't keep the ark of the God of Israel here any longer. He is against us. We will be destroyed along with, our, with Dagon, our God. So they called together the rulers of the Philistine Philistine towns and asked, what should we do with the ark of the God of Israel? The rulers discussed it and replied, move it to the town of Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel to Gath. So now they respond initially in fear. It goes to arrogance. Now it's back to fear again. I mean, they say right there that this God of Israel is so powerful, he's going to destroy us if we keep him here. And not only us, but our God, Dagon, they admit that this is a stronger, mightier God. But they move the ark from their town in, in Ashdod to Gath. Then the people in Gath break out in a plague of tumors. And they freak out and say, we can't keep it here. And so let's get it out. Let's move it to the town of Ekron. So they move it to the town of Ekron. And their people of Ekron are like, well, we don't want it. We heard about what happened already. But they receive it anyways. And they too break out in a plague and tumors. And so now all of the, the Philistine people are, are panicking and saying, we just need to get this thing out of here. And they devise a way to send the ark back to Israel, but in a way that would be miraculous, that only the hand of God could get it there. And I'm not gonna go into details on how it is. You can read it in the script, in the, in the passage later. Again, it, out of fear, they push out God's presence. And think about, there's, there's several scriptures in Proverbs that talk about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But it's not having fear in God that all of a sudden makes you wise. It's the choices you make in that moment of that holy fear. Are we going to, in the time that we're in the presence of God Almighty, his holy presence before him in awe, 
Do we submit to him? Do we surrender to him? Do we give him our all, realizing he is the supreme authority and then lay our lives down before him? If we do, and then we act accordingly, you can gain wisdom. But the Philistines did the opposite. They were afraid. They had the fear of this almighty God, and they said, well, we, we can't even do with it. I mean, it's a very similar story that we find in Matthew 8. When Jesus came across two men that were demon-possessed, and he cast the demons out into a herd of pigs, and the herd of pigs ran off a cliff to their death. Then the whole people of the town came together, and instead of realizing that this man Jesus has the power over demons, over the spiritual realms, and surrender and submit to them, out of the fear of what they saw and out of their own livelihood being lost, they said, Jesus, we don't have nothing to do with you. Just go away. Leave us alone. And they too pushed out the presence of God. The Philistines did not want to submit to this God of Israel. And, and I'm sure because of all the time they had living in proximity to the Israelites, they were probably somewhat pretty familiar with the standards and the lifestyle that these people lived in direct contrast to how they lived. And that knowing that this God was this holy God and they had to live to a higher standard, didn't want to submit to that. I mean, the Philistines, their lifestyle was just self-indulgent. They, they, they acted on whatever greed and lust that they had. It was almost as if their gods were fashioned and crafted to form to their lifestyle. As opposed to looking at this holy God and the morality that he calls us to and crafting our lifestyle to fit the holiness of God. It's like we're saying we want to be king, which is basically saying not that we want to be king, but we want our evil, lustful, griefful desires to be king. And in doing so, we're saying we want Satan to be king. Ouch, that's harsh. But think about it. Everything either comes from God or comes from that which is opposed to God. And if we neglect to surrender to the God Almighty, we by default surrender to that which is opposed to God. When Joshua was at the end of his life, after leading the people into the promised land, he recapped all that God had done for them and their ancestors. And he put this challenge before him, before them. We read this in Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. It'll be on the screen. So the fear, so fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshiped when they lived beyond Euphrates. And in Egypt, serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today. Catch this. Choose today who you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. See, Joshua got it. He understood that if we don't serve the God Almighty, we will serve someone or something else. 
The choice is ours. Fast forward several years. The ark of the Lord has been brought back to Israel. It's actually been moved to the, the home of Abinadab where it remained there for 20 years. And eventually, this kind of unknown guy, David, rises to the throne and as the king of Israel. And he realized he wants to bring the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem. And so he does that. He calls for the ark to be brought out of the home of Abinadab, and he makes a pretty serious flaw, error. He brings the ark back in on a cart, which is the same way the Philistines sent the ark back to Israel from their, from their territory, which is in complete violation of the law that God gave to Moses and how the ark is to be revered and handled and carried and transported. And because of that, in the process of bringing the ark in and the ox stumbling, the cart shifting, and this guy Uzzah in the back reaching out to stay the ark, touches the ark, which is also forbidden, with punishable by death, and he dies right then, right there. David gets angry at God, then he gets afraid of God, says, I can't bring God's presence in here, and he moves it off to another home that's cared for, that cares for the ark, which then God blesses for several months. But eventually, David gets it right. Once he hears about the blessing of where the ark is being held, he asks again to have the ark brought in to Jerusalem. This time he does it correctly. He has the priest carrying it with the, pole, the post on their shoulders. And when they take six steps, he sacrifices to his God. He dances before God with all his might, worshiping him, honoring him, revering him, giving the God the king, the glory of all, his due praise and worship and reverence. Talk about how he humbled himself. He didn't wear his, his kingly robe. He put on a linen ephod, ephod and basically was a priestly garment and allowed him to dance freely before God and again showing that he's just a humble servant before God. When before God, he's not a king. There is only one king. <laughs> and while he's doing this, David's wife, Michal, sees him dancing and being the daughter of Saul, who was king for several years, and seeing a different perspective of how a king should be, looks at David and is ashamed and chastises him when he comes back home. But listen to David's response to his wife. We find this in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 21 and the first part of 22. David retorted to Michal, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. Oh, there's a dig. <laughs> and he appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord. Yes. I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. Wow. That's the proper perspective. David knew his standing before God. He placed himself in proper perspective in relation to his creator. No matter what position we have, no matter what title we wear, no matter how many people we have reporting to us, 
We're all on the same level before our God, humble servants. Now there's some things I wanna pull from these passages, the things that we can learn to help go into this new year, 2018, with a renewed perspective and a renewed commitment to how we approach God and view God and react to his presence in our life. The first lesson is don't take God's presence for granted. Don't take God's presence for granted. The Israelites were guilty of this on more than one occasion. It's what led up to the presence of God for a time to being removed from Israel and taken to the Philistine camp. They took God's presence for granted. They thought when they, they didn't even consult God, they went into battle the first time, suffered loss, and thought that by bringing the ark in that they could have victory, relegating the ark of the Lord, the presence of God, to that of a good luck charm. They were taking God's presence for granted. How do we not take God's presence for granted? The author of Hebrews warns us of this. In Hebrews chapter two, verse one. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard or we may drift away from it. Ladies and gentlemen, this, this is God's truth. How much time do we spend hearing, reading, listening to pulling from, applying God's truth? Are we content with having it right here on the shelf? Or maybe having it in our car? Or maybe the smaller one in our back pocket. I've got God's truth with me, I'm good. I've got the power of God right here. It's no different than the, the Israelites saying, hey, we've got the ark of God with us right now, we're gonna have victory. Are we relegating this to a, to a good luck charm? Or are we diving in? Are we pulling out of this what God is trying to teach us? For when we set this aside, let it collect dust, we're taking God's presence for granted. And in doing so, we're in danger of drifting away. This happens all the time, people. Don't take God's presence for granted. Second lesson we can learn is to approach God with reverence and holiness. Again, David failed to do this in his first attempt to bring the ark in. He treated the ark with irreverence. He placed it on a cart as if it was a common object as opposed to the presence of the God Almighty. 